Hello, Avramada readers. My name is Ratnaguna, and I'm delighted today to have my friend Arijit with me. Hello, Arijit. Hello, Ratnaguna. Nice to be joining you. And uh, today is the, f- the second, actually, in a series of new interviews I'm doing called Books Worth Reading. Uh, last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, I think it was, I interviewed Nyanavacha on the book The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And today, there's another book, but we're going to turn the tables today because I'm going to speak about a book, and Arijit has very kindly agreed to interview me. So, oh, oh, as well as that, actually, he's done some extra work. He bought the book on Friday, he just told me, and he's been reading over the weekend so that he knew a little bit about it. So over to you, Arijit, and let's start with you. Um, what, what, how have you got on with the book so far? Well, so far, um, I've really enjoyed it. By the way, the book is Walking with the Wind. A Memoir of the Movement by John Lewis. Thank you. Should have said that. Yes, yes. (laughs) And so far, I've really enjoyed it. I've got about, uh, only about the fifth of the way through. But so far, it's just been a really engrossing read about, um, in a way, a hero's journey, I think. A man who, you know, was, um, well, I'll let you describe his story and uh, what it's about. But um, so far, I found it thoroughly inspiring and engrossing. So, uh, but let's talk about, let's hear you talk about what you made of the book. Okay. So yeah. first of all, um, the book is a memoir of someone called John Lewis. So just say who John Lewis is and yes. what his story is. Yes. Uh, just before I say that, I would like to thank uh, my Trusara, actually. She sent me the book. It came in the post out of the blue about six months ago, and it took me a while to read it. And But when I read it, oh, I was so pleased I did. I was as you just said to me, uh, you were very engrossed in it. It's a very exciting story, very engrossing story. And uh, it's the same with me. I just lapped it up. But John Lewis, uh, he was born in 1940. Uh, he was a civil rights activist. He was 11 years younger than Martin Luther King, and Luther King was his great hero. Um, he was involved in the whole thing, really. And uh the book is about, it's called A Memoir of the Movement. The movement is the civil rights movement. And so the book is a memoir of him, his life, but it's also the movement, the civil rights movement, from his point of view, what it was like for him to be involved in it. So it's a really marvellous book. Um, I just, like you, RG, I began to look at it again this weekend just to remind myself, and I was moved deeply once again. And uh, the phrase that came out for me more than anything was, this man is a better man than I am. He's a real, more than a hero, I would say. He's a, for me, he's a spiritual hero, but more about that later. Anyway, he was a civil rights activist. Um, After all that, sometime later, he became a a Republican senator uh, from, uh, he was, um, what's the word, representing Georgia. He was Georgia's fifth congressional district from 87, 1987, until his death in 2020. So he died last year, July 17th. Importantly, he was the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Now, in the book, one of the slight difficulties of the book, you get there are lots of movements around that time lots of factions in a way, all with rather long titles like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. And it, 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 it's a little bit like trying to follow a Russian novel sometimes. You, don't, you can't remember who the SLCC is or whatever. But um, they were called for short SNCC, which is quite nice. So he was the chairman of SNCC um, for a few years. And he was also one of the so-called Big Six leaders of the groups who organized the 1963 March on Washington. It's a very big march, very important march. Um, He was very against legalized racial segregation in the United States. In 1965, he led the first of three Selma to Montgomery marches. I think you just told me that you watched the film yesterday, Selma, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yes. Uh, So he was the leader of that march, the first one, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Now, this is a a really, really awful incident that happened. It became known as Bloody Sunday because um, 
John Lewis describes this in great detail, this march. He was at the head of it. They were marching over this bridge and the state troopers were all lined up on the other shore, on the other bank, waiting for them. And uh, they called them to stop. They wanted them to stop marching. But they didn't. Uh, Lewis and the others, they just carried on. And they were singing hymns. This is another thing I want to come back to, actually, their Christianity, very, very Mm -hmm. impressive. But they were singing hymns and they were just carried on marching and the state troopers just attacked them. Uh, It seems incredible these days, but they just attacked them with, you know, these great big sticks they have and uh, Mm -hmm. they just beat them all up. And uh, Lewis describes this in great detail. And there are photographs of, you know, there's a photograph of Lewis on the floor with blood coming down his head and everything. He was actually beaten up many, many times during his life as a civil rights activist, many times. And he was he was um, arrested more times than I can remember, actually, just so many times. Uh, as I said, his great hero is Martin Luther King, um, who was the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You see what I mean? It's very difficult mm. to know yeah, which is yeah. which. The SL's SCLC, which sounds a bit like SNCC, but a very different one. Um, and in fact, Mart- uh, uh, he was, as I say, uh, John Lewis was 11 years younger than King, and King was already active when, Martin Le- when John Lewis was a teenager. And uh, he actually went to meet him, his great hero. And uh, Luther King suggested that he do something for the movement, and um, he was really wanted to do that. But he... Um, he went back to his parents and he had to talk to them about it because, well, for obvious reasons, I suppose, if it gets to know to the to the uh, the white people that he was working for the blacks, like, well, not actually, I shouldn't say working for the blacks. He he would he would tell me off for that. I'll tell you about that later. He was working for equality and so on for all people. Um, if it got known, they they could be in danger. So when he went back, he had to ask them if it's okay and. They weren't not happy about it, but they could see that it meant a lot to him. So he, um, he, 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 he moved away from home and he started to work. But later on, they asked him to stop because they were getting really, really frightened. So mm-hmm. it, it, was a, it was a big blow to him, but he understood. So he stopped doing that then. He mm-hmm. came back into things a few years later. Mm-hmm. So just to set the scene for people who may not be that familiar what was it like for him growing up and for his family growing up at, at that time in a in a in Alabama in the south of uh, America what was the kind of what's it like being if you were black well uh yes he describes that uh just before actually before i answer that question arijit uh we haven't talked about the title working with the wind and uh he starts off with a little story it's only a couple of pages long and um what happened, he was, he was four years old and he was playing with his uh, nephew, uh, what are they, uh, cousins, uh, it, uh, in another, you know, outside another house, uh, outside his aunt Serena's house, actually. And uh, it was a very, very rough wooden house. And uh, there were about 15 children playing outside. And then a great big thunderstorm came, you know, really, really um, big one, like almost like a tornado. And Aunt Serena, you know, got them all inside the house. And there they were. They were really frightened because, you know, the the rain was bashing down and there was thunder and lightning. The wind was moving the house a bit. And then it got really frightening because they could see a corner of the house lifting up. They were really frightened that the the wind was just going to take them away or at least, you know, demolish the house. So Aunt Serena was very frightened as well. But she, she got them to do a game. She got them to hold hands and run towards the corner, which was being mm. pushed up by the wind. And then the wind would change, and then they'd run to the other side and stand there. And they did that for a long time. And so um, he tells that story. And then I'm going to read you this bit of the book, actually, because I find it very moving. He says, more than a century, no, more than half a century has passed since that day. And it has struck me more than once over those many years that our society is not unlike the children in that house. I'm getting moved just as I say this, Mm. Arijit. It might be a bit hard for me to continue. Uh, 
like the children, un- not unlike the children in that house, rocked again and again by the winds of one storm or another, the walls all around us seeming at times as if they might fly apart. It seemed that way in the 1960s at the height of the civil rights movement, when America itself felt as if it might burst at the seams. So many tensions, so many storms. I have to stop, hold on. And it, it, you know, when you read the book, Arajit, you'll, you'll yeah. know exactly yeah. what he's talking about here. And that, that's why I'm stopping because it's mm. pretty heavy, some of it. But the people of conscience never left the house. They never ran away. They stayed. They came together and they did the best they could, clasping hands and moving toward the corner of the house that was the weakest. And then he talks about a bit more about that. And then he says, and we still do, all of us, you and I. Mm. Just have to take my breath again. Children holding hands, walking with the wind. That is America to me. Not just the movement for civil rights, but the endless struggle to respond with decency, dignity, and a sense of brotherhood to all the challenges that face us as a nation, as a whole. Now, the next next paragraph, short paragraph, is very, very important, and I'll come back to it later. That path involves nothing less than the pursuit of the most precious and pure concepts I have ever known. An ideal I discovered as a young man that has guided me like a beacon ever since, a concept called the beloved community. Let me tell you how I came to understand that concept, how it ushered me into the heart of the most meaningful and monumental movement of this American century, and how it might steer us all where we deserve to go in the next. Let me tell you about my life. And then mm. the story begins. And uh, he he, he uh, describes what it's like for him, doesn't he, as his childhood growing up on a farm. He does. They were sharecroppers, and uh, his father actually owned a, a, a house. It was one of the biggest houses around. He he had he'd been working as a f- uh, you know for a farmer for a very very long time, and he managed to save enough money for a house. They had this house with grounds as well, actually. And, um, you know, when when he came of age, he he was very interested in learning. So he wanted to learn. He went to school. But when he came of age, he when when I say that, he was about nine or ten years old. I think he had to start go stop going to school and start working uh, on the farm, uh, growing mainly cotton. And uh, he hated Mm. it. And he used to complain all the time. In fact, sometimes they sent him back in the house because he was complaining so much. Not in a not in a selfish kind of way, but he said, this is crazy. You know, we work really, really hard and we don't get anywhere. What's the point of this? Why do we do this? Um, but yes, uh, I, I, before I say more about that, actually, I, I just want to, last night I was looking at the book and I just read the end and the beginning. And uh, this beloved community, uh, right at the end of the book, 500 pages later, he writes, consider those two words, beloved, not hateful, not violent, not uncaring, not unkind, and community, not separated, not polarized, not adversarial. That is John Lewis, actually. That's him all Mm. over, beloved and community. He really believed that and there's there's something else I want to tell you a bit later on about his religious beliefs as well. But I must say I they're very, very impressive. He's impressive and so are the people he worked mm. with. But to get back to the farm, yes, he he really didn't want to carry on doing that. Um he, he, and uh at five years old he was given the task, the job of looking after the chickens. They had a chicken house, and he looked after the chickens, and there's this very sweet passage where he's talking about his love for those chickens mm. I, I think it will sound a bit mawkish when I talk about it but he he writes about it very very well he actually experienced those chickens as real beings they weren't just animals to eat you know they were real 
beings for him. And he was very, very committed to Christianity. And he used to do services for them. He'd, he'd sit in the hen house with them and he'd do a whole Christian service for them. Mm. I mean, it sounds crazy. And I'm sure some people will laugh at this, but he took it absolutely mm. seriously. And he said mm. about that, that he started his life's mission at that point. He was always a Christian. He was always, in a way, a Christian minister, although he never actually, I don't think he ever actually really became a minister, but that was his calling, you know. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. And uh, he also talks about the fact that uh, he would not kill any of those chickens, but his dad or his mum did. And when they did, he wouldn't come into the house to eat. He would not eat that yeah. chicken. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Tremendous. Yeah, it's very touching that, isn't it? How he, how he each in, he knew each he could tell apart each individual chicken. Yes, they were each an individual being to him. So they were personalities to him, weren't they? They weren't just mm. bits of life. They were actually real beings. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So, and uh, as he grew up, he begins to see. He begins to learn about segregation. And yes. How, uh, yeah, he yeah. He, he's, he first began to learn about it as far as I remember. You might be able to correct me on this because you've been reading more recently than me, but as far as I remember it, it was when he the, 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 the school was in Troy, I think, which is the biggest town close to him, but they had to get a bus. So, uh, you know, a bus came and picked them up, and often the bus would not make it to the school. It was a really old beaten-up bus, and in the, in the snow and so on, it all, sometimes wouldn't make it. Uh, but he noticed that the white people had a different bus and their bus was really good and it always made it to the school. And that was the first thing he thought, how come? You know, why are we in this horrible old bus that, you know, often breaks down and they're in that really good bus? And that that struck him very forcefully. And that was the beginning, in a way, of his life, his, uh, his life's work. Mm. Mm. Uh, let me just read another bit here. Um, not too far in the book, actually. Uh, page 64. Um, I think he was at school or university and he really wanted to learn. He really wanted to learn. He was very, very keen on education. And then he says this, it was at this time that I began believing in what I call the spirit of history. Cap the spirit of history here is capitalized. Others might call it fate or destiny or a guiding hand. Whatever it is called, I came to believe that this force is on the side of what is good, of what is right and just. It is the essence of the moral force of the universe, and at certain points in life, in the flow of human existence and circumstances, this force, this spirit, finds you or selects you. It chases you down, and you have no choice. You must allow yourself to be used to be guided by this force and to carry out what must be done. To me, that concept of surrender, of giving yourself over to something inexorable, something so much larger than yourself, is the basis of what we call faith. And this is the most first and most crucial step toward opening yourself to the spirit of history. Mm. Does that remind you of anything, Arijit? Yeah, it does. I, uh, but the, the, I think you know we talk a lot about you know the kind of things that uh, John Lewis talks about, faith and, and spirituality and nonviolence. But it's very rare we have to we're put to the test in the sense that that he he was, and he he chose to put himself in harm's way, and. Uh, yeah, it makes me think a couple of things. How how would I kind of act if I was in that kind of situation, had those choices? And uh, yeah, what what is it today that we've got to um, you know to die for essentially? Because that's what these people were were putting their lives on the line for the for this cause. Yes, um, yes, they 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 had a real mission, didn't they? A really proper mission. Yeah. yeah. Um, Yes. Uh, well, it reminds me of uh, our teacher, Bhante Sangharachita, Ergen Sangharachita, uh, when he was in India and uh, he was got involved in the uh, the movement, uh, 
Dr. Ambedkar's movement against mm. untouchability and um, how he was in this great big city. Uh, you know, I can't remember the name of the city, Awajit. Can you remember it? Nagpur? I think, yes, Nagpur, that's it, mm. yes. Yeah. And uh, he got to hear about um, Dr. Ambedkar's death when he was there. And he spent the next, what was it, 24 hours giving talk after talk through the night in different mm. places, one after another. He never got tired. And then he spoke of, in very similar terms that John Lewis has spoken of here as a kind of force, uh, a force for the good that just took over him. He wasn't tired at the end of this 24 hours of you know giving talk after talk after talk through the night. And he just wasn't tired. And he felt that some guiding hand, uh, a power beyond him, was working through him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. It's quite interesting as we go, as you go through the book, as you read it. Um, uh, one of the things that strikes me really strongly and impresses me deeply is all the people involved in that movement were Christians and they weren't Christians in the ethnic sense or in the, you know, in the sense that so many people seem to be Christians these days. They really meant it. It was very, very important to them. And uh, one of the one of the things that um, struck me very strongly was the nonviolence. Remember, SNCC mm. means Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And yeah. my goodness, they really meant it. Uh, as did Dr. Mm. King, of course, Martin Luther King. Um, and they were very um, inspired by Gandhi. And his mm. nonviolence in India. Now, anybody who knows very much about Gandhi will know that actually, although he was a great man in some ways, in that he was he what he was fighting against there was the British col colonialization of India, and uh, he ha he acted very well in that situation, of course. But I think what John Lewis and uh, Martin Luther King may not have known was that. Um, uh, Gandhi actually upheld the caste system. So he's actually mm. not very popular amongst the ex-untouchables, the Dalits, uh, <laughs> for that reason. But I, I, I think John Lewis didn't know that. So for them, Gandhi was this great figure of nonviolence. And uh, as I say, they really meant it. And when mm. uh, John Lewis joined the SNCC, um, their teacher in nonviolence was a man called Jim Lawson. Now, there's something very interesting about this. So he talks about hate in the book. Uh, he talks about love and he hates and suffering. So on page 77, he says, suffering, though, can be nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart, an accepting open heart, a heart that holds, holds no malice, towards the inflictors of his or her suffering. This is a difficult concept to understand that it is even more difficult to internalize, but it has everything to do with the way of nonviolence. So, um, so Jim Lawson, uh, again, inspired by Gandhi, he trained the members of SNCC to be nonviolent. And there's a passage in the book where Lewis tells you, describes how they did that. So they'd meet together. I don't know how many of them, 20, 30, perhaps young black students, and uh, they'd have to practice being nonviolence. And the way they did that, they break into two groups. Uh, one group had to be who they were, you know, the, the, the black people standing up for their rights. And the other people had to pretend to be, they took on the role of uh, white troopers, um, policemen and white thugs, basically. Uh, because they used to get beaten, not lot beaten up a lot by these people, so they had to, to actually do that. And one of the things that Jim Lawson said, in fact, I've got a quote here. If I can, if I can find it easily enough, I'll do the quote because it's yes. Um, Lewis says it's a way of life. This is something that Lawson stressed over and over again: that this is not simply a technique or a tactic or strategy or tool to be pulled out when needed. It is not something you turn on or off like a faucet, or as we would say, like a tap. This sense of love, this sense of peace, 
the capacity for compassion is something you carry inside yourself every waking minute of the day. It shapes your response to a curt cashier in the grocery store or to a driver cutting you off in traffic, just as surely as it keeps you from striking back at a state trooper who might be kicking you in the ribs because you dared to march in protest against an oppressive government. If you want to create an open society, your means of doing so must be consistent with the society you want to create. And so the way Jim Lawson would train them, he'd get half of this bunch to beat up the other half. And he would say, right, it's not enough not just to retaliate. Yeah, you've got to feel love towards a person who's kicking you. Yeah. How do you do that? That's really hard, isn't it? And um, so uh, they, they actually had a technique for doing this. They used visualization and imagination. So the state trooper or the young white thug is kicking them in the ribs or wherever. And uh, you imagine them as a baby. Yeah. And you can't mm. hate a baby. You know, you imagine them as a baby. And then that's a way in which to feel love and compassion towards this person who's given you, well, really beating you up. And some of those beatings up, I don't know if you've read any of this, Arjit, but they were really serious. Uh, mm. Some of those people ended up mm. with brain damage. Some were crippled for life. Some were killed. Yeah. Yeah. And he says that uh, Martin Luther King would often say that we've got to love people no matter what. Most of all, he said, we must love the unlovable. Love the hell out of them, he would say. <laughs> and he meant that literally. If there is hell in someone, if there is meanness and anger and hatred in him, we've got to love it out. Gosh. Mm. And it was and it was incredibly successful, wasn't it? This this uh movement, this non-violent peaceful movement. Eventually. Was incredibly effective, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, eventually. After many, yeah. many years of struggle and many beatings up, many arrests. Uh, many killings, actually, awful killings. Um, mm. But, yeah, it was eventually successful. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a, it, it, does, it does seem quite Buddhist, isn't it, that, that they were looking at the, the people that were oppressing them and beating them up and thinking of, well, thinking of them as being the victims of the conditions mm. that caused them to hate as well, weren't they? they were, yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, it does feel quite familiar to Buddhist uh, kind of... Well, of course, there's teaching. a Buddhist sutta, isn't there, a text where the Buddha says to his uh, monks, uh, you've got to love people. The word we use is metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is the love that uh, Lewis is talking about here. You've got to love people. And to the extent that, then he, he gets them to imagine, he gets his disciples to imagine that they've been captured by bandits and those bandits are very slowly um, sawing through their limbs with a rusty saw. And uh, you've mm. got to love, you've got to feel meta towards those people. Um, <laughs> I think this is one of the reasons why I say that John Lewis is a much better man than I am, because I'm not sure that I would be able to do that. I mean, it only takes mm. someone to cut me up or to say something a bit unkind to me, and I'm... I can feel myself flare up inside, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it does ask, like I said earlier, it does, this book does make you ask the question, how would I respond in that situation? Yes. How would I, even, even if you were white and you stood up for, you know, for the, the blacks, you could get, you could get attacked and killed even as, as well. You, you could, you, you know. could. Some white people so, were killed as well for, for um, standing with the blacks. Let's talk about that a little for a while because um, the, the overall feeling you get from reading the book is that it really was the majority of white people um, agreed with the idea of segregation and second-class citizens and so on. Because whenever mm -hmm. they the blacks, SNCC, the SNCC and so on came out to demonstrate, um, they'd be treated really, really badly by the white onlookers. So you get this impression that it was endemic. It was all over America. Well, we don't know because, mm. of course, uh, both Dr. King and uh, 
John Lewis were in the South. And I'm going to talk about that a bit, actually, because this is where the white people come in. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you had ha- ever heard of Harry Belafonte before, Arijit. You might not be old enough. I have heard of him, but I don't know where and why. I think he was uh, an, what we now call an impresario. He was uh, in showbiz, I think, Harry Belafonte. He mm-hmm. might have even been a singer, I don't know, because I'm, I'm a bit young as well, but I, I had heard of him. And there there's a couple of pictures in the books, a couple of photographs of um, Harry Belafonte with Martin Luther King and John Lewis and so on. And he seems like a very, very good man. And he was outspoken. You know, he just came out and said, no, this is very wrong. And uh, of course, a lot of white people did the same. And uh, so what happened was, at first, it was all black people in the South demonstrating against these terrible impositions on them. But uh, then the white uh, some white students in the, the northern parts of America, uh, California and so on, they got to hear about this and they were very um, uh, idealistic and they wanted to join. So in their summer holidays, they came down to join them, which was a good, nice thought, but it, it, it started to become very, it, became, it gave them a problem because uh, the people of SNCC, and the people of Martin Luther King's group as well, I, I believe, were trained in nonviolence. And so when they went out and people started to, to beat them up, they just didn't retaliate. Mm. Uh, but the white students that came down were full of idealism, but they weren't trained in nonviolence. So when, when the state troopers came to start beating them up as well, they began to fight back. And then mm. the movement started getting a bad name. So that was really mm. really problematic for them. And the, uh, the whole um, issue of white people helping the black people became really problematic for that reason. They weren't fully trained. Mm. They didn't really understand the ethos of the civil rights movement. But also they began to get jobs in the civil rights movement. This comes a bit later in the book. They began to get jobs. And some of the black people said, well, why has he got a job? You know, I'd like that job. So then they wanted to get rid of all the whites. Now, this is where John Lewis, all the way through the book, he's very clear. He's not fighting specifically for black people. Yeah. And he's a, he's an in, he was an integrationist. He didn't want to segregate black people, even if they were treated well. He wanted the black people and white people to come together as one family. Um, so he was very happy that white people were working for the SNCs as well as black people. But it, it became really problematic. and. I won't go into the whole thing, but it, you know, there's a whole many, many pages of the, he writes about the difficulties of that actual situation where whites are actually trying to help, but they're in some ways they were in some ways a hindrance. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, well, I didn't. I haven't read much about his later life, really, but he became a congressman, didn't he? Yes. Does the book talk about that very much? Not very much, no. In fact, only the very final chapter, yeah, the final chapter, he zooms you up to the present moment. And he talks about mm. he became a Democratic uh, rep- uh, uh, senator or congressman. And uh, as I think I said earlier, he was from 1987 right through to his death in 2020. He retained that post. And I believe he was very respected. He was a um, controversial man because this is another thing I would say about him. I would say he was a true individual in Sangratch's sense of the term. Uh, and mm. he, was con- he was very controversial because being an individual, he thought for himself and he had his own views about things and they often clashed. He clashed, for instance, with um, Stokely Carmichael who wasn't that into nonviolence. I, th- I think I'm tr- think it's true to say that Stokely Carmichael thought that uh, people should fight back if they were attacked. And, of course, um, he disagreed with Mar- um, Malcolm X and his way of going about things. Um, but, mm. yes, uh, towards the end of his life, he was a, he was a Democrat. And um, he, he just carried on with his philosophy, which is a Christian philosophy, all the way through. Um, Right at the end here, I'll just skip to write the, the last last bit, actually. because So this is page 502. From time to time, I feel the presence of power, that force that I call the spirit of history. Sometimes you're guided by it, led by it. Other times you're in tune with the force and you can communicate with it. 
you have to be in tune and you have to allow yourself to be used by this supreme being. That's what made me feel. That's what made me feel when we were at the heights of. I must have written down that down long. I must have written that down wrong. That's how I felt, I think, when we were at the heights of the civil rights movement, whether it was the march from Selva to Montgomery, going on the freedom rides, we haven't spoken about the freedom rides yet, that we were involved in something like a holy crusade. It was an extension of my religious convictions, my faith. We would sing a song or say a prayer, and it was an affirmation that it was the right thing to do. At that time, we were communicating with a supreme being, with this force. And then he says, the very last words are this. There is an old African proverb, when you pray, move your feet. As a nation, if we care for the beloved community, we must move our feet, our hands, our hearts, our resources to build and not to tear down, to reconcile and not to divide, to love and not to hate, to heal and not to kill. In the final analysis, we are one people, one family, one house, the American house, the American family. So I, I wanted to go to the end of the book because it's in that, that last chapter that he, he writes about being a senator or a congressman. I'm mm. afraid I don't know the difference between the two. I'm sure there is one. Um, but uh, it's, it's a, just an extension of all the work he did and his whole attitude to things in the civil rights movement, nothing's much changed. Mm. And uh, so he, he was very, very outspoken. He was very against, he spoke out against the Gulf War. He wasn't into that at all. He thought it was a very bad idea because he, he, he was totally committed to nonviolence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wonderful man. And, uh, and you mentioned the freedom rides there. What, yeah. what were they? Well, um, in those days, in the South, you uh, there were buses. Blacks could get on the buses. They had to sit at the back, I believe. Um, but then, then you got to the bus station. There were toilets for whites and toilets for blacks. Um, no, actually, I don't think I've got that right. I think, no, I don't think they were allowed on the bus with white people. But they got, just got on the bus anyway. And uh, some of the drivers refused to drive until eventually a driver came along and he said, OK, I'll drive them. But um, they were attacked sometimes. So it would be a very long bus ride, like a, like a Greyhound bus, you know. And uh, so right through the countryside and so on. Sometimes they were ambushed. Uh, some, uh, there was one bus that was firebombed. A, a number of people were killed in that bus. And then they got to the bus station and they all... Sometimes, you know, people were waiting for them to beat them up when they came out. And sometimes the state troopers were there and they did nothing. They just stood on. They just watched the, these white thugs beat them up. Um, and then there were two toilets, um, not men and women. There was white men and, and black men and white women and black women. And the, the black people used to go into the white men's toilets. And uh, that didn't go down very well at all. But they did lots and lots of these freedom rides. That was a very big part of the whole um, uh, work that they were doing. Actually, it began, I'll tell you how it began. Um, in Troy, the, the town nearest to where uh, Lewis lived, uh, there was a department store. And the department store were quite happy to have black people come in and buy because they bought things, you know, so they were very happy about that. They got money from the black people. But there was a cafe and the black people weren't allowed into the cafe. So... Uh, what they did is just four of them, they would dress up. That's another thing. They always dressed up. Whenever they went out to demonstrate, they dressed up in the men in suits and ties, good mm. shoes, well, as good as they could get, and the women in lovely frocks and so on. So they were they were respectable. You know, they looked respectable. So four of them would go into a cafe and sit down at a, a table. And then the waitress, white waitress, wouldn't know what to do. She'd be looking at them and be flummoxed you know sort of discombobulated oh dear and uh she eventually she'd come up and in a nice way they the, the john lewis said he's they, you know they were very nice and polite they said i'm sorry but you're not allowed to sit here and then they would ask the question you know well why not well well this is only for white people oh they'd say well we, we'll just stay here and then the manager would come out and he would be a bit less uh polite to them 
Uh, but they would just sit there. And for the first few times they did it, that's all they did. They sat there, no, tea, no food or drink until the cafe closed. And then they left. That was it. That's all they did. Of course, what happened after a while was that uh, the, the young white thugs, as I keep calling them, um, what would we call them? Like skinheads, I suppose. Um, alt-right people, I guess we would say nowadays. Uh, they, they would know that they were going to do that. They would come and make trouble, you know, sort of drag them around and kick them and so on. But that's how they began. So the first thing was uh, sitting in cafes. And then there was uh, the cinema. So uh, cinemas, um, what was it? Were cinemas were segregated. Ah, uh, that's it. I think it was that the, the, the blacks had to sit right at the back mm-hmm. and the whites had the middle and the front. And um, was it that or they weren't even allowed in? I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember. The, 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 uh, I, I, can't, I think he describes having to be in the, in the, at the top. But they're definitely segregated anyway, aren't they? They have to sit. They had to, they had to climb stairs out the back, yeah. uh, up the top. Yeah. That's it, yeah. So what they did one time is they stood in the queue where the white people were. They just stood in the queue to get a ticket. And, of course, you know, it would take a long time to get to the ticket office. And then they'd say, can I have a ticket for the film? And they wouldn't be allowed. So they would just stand there. <laughs> All the people behind the queue were getting really upset and angry with them and so on. But they did that a number of times as well. Lots and lots of things they did, marches, freedom rides, uh, sitting in cafes, um, sitting in cinemas or standing outside cinemas. They did lots and lots of things, but all of it absolutely nonviolent until until the what young white idealists came along. Mm. And then that, that, that didn't work very well for them, really. Mm. Yeah. So reading this book, what, what impact has it had on you, Ranagun, what? Uh, well, as I've said a couple of times already, the impact it had on me was, I, as I read it, I felt I was in the presence of a really great man. Mm. Um, a great man in the sense of a man of great integrity, a real individual, but a very spiritual man in a way that I'm afraid I'm not. Um, it, so yeah, I look up to him, I revere him very mm. much. Mm. And uh you know, I, when I knew I was going to do this interview, I, I kind of begrudgingly stopped reading the book I was reading to go back to this other one. I, I don't really like going back to other books very much. But over the weekend, I was so glad I did. I was moved all over again. Mm. So the, uh, the effect it's had on me is feel very humble, actually. It's been a very humbling experience reading the book, inspiring mm. and humbling at the same time. Inspiring in that, my God, not only John Lewis, but so many of them. He, and he, he mentioned so many of them by name. Some of the women, ma, they were so strong, mm. so strong. Um, yeah, I wish I could tell you about some of them, but we should come. To, we should, I think we're coming to the end, aren't we now? Mm. Um, but yes, uh, humbling, uh, but also very inspiring mm. uh, in a way that is a good thing. You know, it's a good thing, and um, yes, uh, and it's um, what else has it done for me? Well, I, the last well, maybe 10 years, I've, I've found a, a new respect for Christianity. Mm. Um, I never had much respect for it when I was a younger man, but uh, I've read a number of books by Christians, mainly Christian theologians, actually, and um, they're very, very good. And often I feel a great kinship with uh, Christians, more so than with atheists, actually. I feel I have got more in common with Christians than yeah. I have with atheists. Yeah. And I feel so much in common with John Lewis and many of the people in his story. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel we've got so much in common with them. The beloved community, that that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to make America into a beloved community. No hatred, etc., and no polarization, no adversarial uh, stand-ups, you know, but, you know, so everybody loved each other. And the spirit of history working through him, um, what we would call, I suppose, the bodhicitta, um, mm. guiding us in our spiritual lives um, and, you know, uh, our trying to make the world into a better place. That's exactly what they were doing, John Lewis and his friends and colleagues were doing. But they had – their working ground was a very, very tough one. And, of course – with a very tough working ground, it either breaks you or makes you great. Mm. And um, I suppose if John Lewis was a light, you know, just born 
20 years ago, he he may not have the context to become, to do what he did. But Mm. um, who knows, he might have done in another way. But Mm. yes, for me, he's in the pantheon of great men, great individuals. Mm. Mm. Okay, and his hero was, of course, Martin Luther King. What, yes. what, how does he come across in the book? How did, and him meeting him and working with him? How does how does how does Martin Luther King come across? He comes across very very well. Um, as I say, there were factions. Uh, I've spoken about two of them already. There's the SNCC and there's the is it S S L C? I can't remember S C L C. I can't remember the the one of um, Martin Luther King's movement. And they had differences of opinion. Uh, the two movements. Uh, there's also the NAACP, which is the uh, oh uh, National Alliance for the Advancement of Coloured People. That's another. But there were many others as well, and they all had slightly different takes on things. And so, the big march to Washington. Uh, was quite difficult because all of the groups were involved in it and they all, all had different ideas about how it should be done and so on. Mm. But um, I lost my thread there, Arjit. What was the question you asked me again? Of oh, Dr. King. Yeah. Yes. Um, he was criticised uh, for a number of things he did because he had to be very careful. He was. A, he, he became a statesman, of course. He became the the leader, the the spokesman for the whole of the black community in America. And so he has to be very careful what he did. And sometimes he did something or he didn't do something that other people thought he should have done or not done. Um, And, you know, you can see why they thought that. But John Lewis is always standing up for him. Mm. Um, He said, no, 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 you you have to realize the situation he's in. Rather like the Dalai Lama today, I suppose, Mm. um, where he just had to be so careful what he said and did. Um, there There was one incident that John Lewis describes where he and uh, Martin Luther King must have been at the same march or something. And anyway, at the end of the day, they, they, they went to a hotel and a white man came up to Martin Luther King and said, are you, are you Martin Luther King? And he said, yeah. And the white man just proceeded to beat him up <laughs> just there. And then just really beat him up. Yeah. Hit him on the floor and kicking him and so on. And John Lewis, he says that without thinking, he just leapt to Martin Luther King's uh, defense and uh, began grappling with this man. And he said he has never, ever been in a fight in his life until then. Mm. (coughs) He's been beaten up many, many times, but he didn't respond, didn't retaliate. But he couldn't help himself. He retaliated on on, on behalf of Martin Luther King. And that was the one time, the one time then he was what you could call violent. Mm. Yeah, so he he had the greatest respect for Martin Luther King. Um, ah, I, might, I, I would like to finish actually with one more thing. I really want to talk about this. So they were working or trying to work with politicians, uh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, um, but before him with um, Kennedy, uh, JFK. And uh, just before JFK was uh, became the president, uh, they, were, they were trying to work with him. He was, he was a Democratic leader and what what would happen was actually the the segregation laws had been outlawed uh, federally. Uh, no, yeah, federally they'd been outlawed. So really, uh, segregation was against the law, but it wasn't being followed through in the states and especially the southern states. They just ignored that. And what John Lewis and his colleagues were trying to get uh, the Kennedys to do, uh, there was John Kennedy and there was um, Bobby Kennedy, was make the states follow that law. Simple in a way, isn't it? But they they wouldn't do it. They kept saying they were going to do it, but they kept stalling. And uh, the reason they didn't, because they were frightened of losing the white vote. You know, politicians, that's the way they work, isn't it? They, they'll try to do something, but if it looks like they'll lose the vote, they, they won't do it. So they were dragging their feet for years, and uh, the black people became really, really fed up with them. Um, but there's one day, some years later, uh, John Lewis and... Uh, a woman, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember her name, but they were with Bobby Kennedy in the White House. They had a meeting with him. And, and the woman by then was really cynical uh, of Bobby Kennedy because he'd said he'd do this, he'd said he'd do that, and he never did. But anyway, they had this meeting, and it was on the day that Floyd Patterson and um, uh, 
Sonny Liston had the big fight. Again, you'll be too young to know about that, but they had they they were they were fighting uh, a, bo- a boxing match. Uh, so there was a break in the meeting, and Bobby said, um, "Oh, come through, and we'll we'll see how the fight's getting on." So they're they're watching the fight for a while on the telly, but Bobby Kennedy took John Lewis aside, and he said, "John, I've got it now. I've got it." Uh, in fact, I think I've got the. I wonder if I've got the quote in front of me. I hope I have. No, I don't have the quote, but uh, I, I I wrote it down last night and I can't find it. But he, he said something like this: "I've got it now. I understand what you young people are trying to do, and I've changed." Yeah, he said that, and uh, John Lewis said that that was. That was the most astounding thing anybody had ever said to him. And he felt it from him and he felt that it was true. And then as the years go on, uh, he really had changed. You could say he had a conversion experience. The rest Mm. of his life was spent um, fighting not only for black people, but also for the indigenous Indians and for any downtrodden people, you know, uh, white people, working class people. That was his life. That's what he did. And uh, it, it, for me, that's like, my goodness, that's a real conversion experience. Mm. Um, mm. And mm. as we know, you know, um, uh, JFK was murdered, was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And on the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was out. Um, I think he was, uh, it was coming up to a presidential uh yeah, uh, an election and he was out speaking a lot and he was out speaking all day he heard about it in the day he came back and he just threw himself on the bed john lewis was in the room he threw himself on the bed and he just wept mm. he just wept mm. and of course you know we know now what happened to him in the end he was he was a, a elected president on the day he was elected president he was assassinated mm. yeah. so these are the kind of forces but you know, John Lewis was uh, is very inspiring, but I found that whole situation with Bobby Kennedy really, really inspiring. Mm. Someone who actually really did change. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But I think we'd better stop, hadn't we? Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading the rest of the book. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. It's been great hearing about your uh, thoughts on it. Yeah, and thank you so much for doing this for me, Arjit. Really thanks, thanks for putting it. me onto the book. It's such an inspiration. Good. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.